0: Now, one of the uh, questions or objections even that often gets raised when it comes to people thinking about God and the Bible and Christianity comes from passages just like this one in Ezekiel 4 and 5. People will often ask the question, well, isn't God supposed to be a loving God and a forgiving God? And this passage seems to be anything but that. People will say, well, isn't God supposed to be kind and nice and, and gentle? And yet we have God in this passage visiting vengeance, bloodshed, punishment on his own people. In another congregation we had a sermon series where people could kind of vote for the top five topics they wanted covered. And one of the top five topics that people were asking about was why is there so much bloodshed and violence in the Bible? Why is it that God seems to be intent on destroying People left, right, and center. Now, in some way, I, I reckon that that was also a question that people in Ezekiel's time were asking as well. Why is this happening? Why so much bloodshed? Why so much violence? What is God doing in a situation like this? Isn't God supposed to be our God? Didn't he rescue us? Didn't he make us his own? Didn't he say that he loves us? And here we are, far away from his land. People have been killed. More people will be killed. Why is this happening? That's the kind of territory that we want to be working in and thinking in this morning. Why is God seeming so angry at his people? Why is he bringing this kind of punishment on them? This, really, this passage really forms the start of Ezekiel's prophetic ministry. The first three chapters, which we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, are really his calling and his commissioning. These are the first acts and the first things that he says to the exiles of Israel. He is given four scenes to act out, uh, four scenes in which he displays uh, what is happening to them in different ways. And then he explains or gives a word from God which explains those scenes and in that also begins to give an explanation of why it is happening. He's explaining why God is bringing such judgment and punishment on his people. And so that's what we want to do this morning. That's what we want to have a look at. We want to have a look at these four scenes that Ezekiel is told to act out. And then we want to have a look at the explanation that God gives to for these scenes and gives for this disaster. And we want to think not just about what God was saying to a people two and a half thousand years ago, but what God might be telling us about himself in the world today. And what he might be calling from from his people in this church and in this time. So let's have a look. Four scenes that Ezekiel is asked to act out. Act really, these scenes form act one of the Ezekiel drama. So Act 1, scene 1, in which Ezekiel lays siege to a city. Ezekiel is told, and remember, he's silent during this time, only speaking when God tells him to speak. He takes a clay tablet, and on that tablet, he is told to draw a map of the city of Jerusalem. Now, quite likely, people were wandering past, and seeing Ezekiel do that, and they would have got it straight away. Ezekiel has a map of the city of Jerusalem. Everybody could recognize it. And maybe people were thinking, oh, Ezekiel's getting nostalgic for back home. Or maybe they got nostalgic for back home. Yeah, remember Jerusalem. Remember what it was like. Oh, I wish we could go back there. Then Ezekiel goes further. He makes a little model around the city. It's siege works, it's ramps, it's battering rams, it's armies, it's it's people besieging the city of Jerusalem. And maybe people said, yeah, we remember what that was like. It was awful. And they thought, maybe, maybe that's happening again. Maybe that will happen again. But it's okay, they thought. You see, in that city is a temple. And in that temple is the Lord God. And as long as he is in that city and in that temple, nothing wrong can really happen. But then Ezekiel goes further out of his house, he drags his wife's largest fry pan and he holds it there in front of his face. And he looks at the city from behind an iron frying pan. And whether they got it straight away or whether it became clearer later, the message will eventually become known, God wasn't in the city, God was against it. What was happening is not a mistake, This is God's doing. It's Act 1, Scene 2, in which Ezekiel lies on his side. Ezekiel is then commanded by God to lie on his left-hand side against the city of Israel, against the city of Jerusalem, on his left-hand side, bound with ropes, bearing his arm, prophesying against the city for 390 days, bearing the sins of the city. One day for each year. So 390 years being represented in 390 days. Most likely the time from the temple's building to the time of the temple's destruction. And he is to lie on his side, and on his side he is to bear the sins of his people. Now, he's not bearing it on behalf of the city. He's not suffering for the city like we think of Christ suffering for it. He's demonstrating the sinfulness of God's people over an extended period of time. From the time the city was built to the time that the city will be destroyed, God's people have been rebelling and doing their own thing. And then for 40 more days, and some suggest that the last 40 days runs concurrently with the end of the 390, but for the last 40 days, he's then to lie on his right-hand side. Again bound, again armband, prophesying against the city. Again a day for a year, 40 years most likely, the time of the exile the time that Israel will spend away from their land. Acts 1, scene 3, in which Ezekiel slowly starves. For that 390 days, Ezekiel is to have a jar next to him, filled with all kinds of lentils, all kinds of beans and grains. We think it's pretty trendy when you eat spelt bread uh, and you eat lentils, it's supposed to be kind of trendy and, uh, you know, health conscious. That was not the case for Ezekiel. He's to take a small amount of that every day. And he is on cow poop to bake himself a little loaf of starvation bread, about 200 grams a day. And he's to have some water and he is to drink about six mils of that water every day. It is a starvation ration. It is just enough to keep someone alive, barely alive, for a year. God makes it clear to Ezekiel they will be appalled at the sight of each other and they will waste away because of their sin. Ezekiel will be in front of the exiles a living example, a wasting away example of what is happening back in the city of Jerusalem. They will be horrified by what they see going on in front of them. But it is what everyone will see on every street corner in Jerusalem, God says. Now imagine the impact of this. Ezekiel starts silently with, 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 a, with a tablet. And then he starts lying on his side. And throughout the exile camp, word would be spreading. Ezekiel is being really weird. Every day he gets out of his house and he goes and he lies down and he eats a little bit and then at the end of the day he goes back and then the next day he comes out again. And you can imagine every day the crowd kind of gets just a little bit bigger and bigger and people get more and more curious about what is, what is going on. But it goes on for 10, 20, 30, Day. At some point, the crowds must have started to to deplete. He just keeps doing the same thing every day. What's he doing? So maybe from then on, people would just sort of pop past. Yeah, he's, he's still at it, and then they kind of went on their way and went about their business. Until one day, after a year, things changed dramatically. Act One, Scene Four, in which Ezekiel lashes out. Ezekiel stands up one day, and with a sword, he cuts off his hair and his beard. You can imagine that someone sees this, and word spreads like wildfire throughout the exile camp. Ezekiel is doing something different today. It's changing. Things are happening. People come there, and they see this man with his emaciated body, hacking away at the hair on his beard and his hair. It's humiliating. It's degrading. It is what no self-respecting man would do, let alone a priest like Ezekiel. It's what foreign armies do to humiliate their captives. But it calls to mind what a prophet had said some years earlier in Isaiah 7, that one day God would hire a foreign king and he would use them as a razor to shave the hair of his people. He will bring judgment and humiliation on his people through a foreign king. The scene moves quickly. Ezekiel gets his hair and he weighs it out into three piles. He still has his clay tablet of the city of Jerusalem there and he throws it on it. A third one of those piles he throws on and he lights a match to it. It burns. Message is clear. People will die in that city. Another one, another pile he grabs up and with a sword, he starts to hack away at it around about the city. People will die there too. The last pile he picks up and he, he scatters to the wind and then he chases after it with the sword, hacking away at it. People are going to die in foreign lands. And at the last minute, he picks up a few of the hairs, he tucks them into his belt, and then thinking a bit more of it, he throws a few more back in the fire. People will continue to die. Can you imagine the crowd standing around? Ezekiel, weak, roughly shaven, hasn't spoken for 390 days. You could hear a pin drop as people are listening. What is he going to do next? And then Ezekiel opens his mouth. And people are ready to listen. People want to hear what it is he has to say. Ezekiel 5 verse 5. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem. Now this is more than just a geographical statement, isn't it? I mean, they they knew it was Jerusalem. They, They saw the picture there. This is a theological statement. This is Jerusalem which I have set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Ezekiel is calling to mind everything that Jerusalem and Israel and the people should have been. He's calling to mind what God intended with them. This is God's nation. This is God's city. This is not some foreign country and some foreign people getting what they deserve. This is God's very own people. The ones He rescued. The one He drew out of Egypt. The one He saw through the desert. The one He gave the land to. The one He told to build the temple. The one He said that He lived in the middle of it. This is God's city Jerusalem, the nation that was meant to be at the center of God's plans, the the nation that was meant to live life not for themselves but for their God who saved them and so that through them they might be an example and a model of what life with God looks like. They were meant to be a city on a hill that people looked up to, that people said that's what God does in a life. That's what the Lord God can do. It was meant to be attractive and to draw people in. And look at what God says, verse 6. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. The end of verse 7, you have not even conformed to the stands of the nations around you. What's God saying? A relationship with Him is meant to mean something. Being saved by and belonging to the Sovereign Lord is meant to mean something for the way that you live. From the time that God created this world and He, he made people in His image, it was meant to mean something for the way that they lived. When God rescued a people and made them His own and He made them as holy and as special people, it was meant to mean something for the way that they live life. And what's God saying? You don't even look like the nations around you. You look worse. You of all people should know, and yet you don't. You of all people should live life right, and yet you're worse than everyone else. You see, God's people that He draws to Himself, that He brings into relationship with Himself, are meant to live and to act differently. A relationship with the living Lord, a relationship with God through His Son Jesus, is meant to mean something for the way that we live. It's meant to shape the decisions that we make, and the lifestyle choices that we make, and the way that we do relationships, and the way that we love people, and the way that we serve and honor God. Relationship with God is meant to mean something. It's meant to mean everything for the way that we live. See, what God is doing here is not random judgment on a random people. He is visiting a people who should have known better. He's visiting a people who should have been distinctive in the world, but yet went around looking worse than everyone else. You see, we know, don't we, that if you're in a relationship with somebody, it means to mean something. If you're married to somebody, it's more than just wearing a ring on your finger. It's meant to mean that you're exclusive to them, that you love them, that you protect them. When we have children, it means something, doesn't it, that relationship? It means you care for them, you nurture them, you love them, you look after them. God's saying a relationship with Him is meant to mean something. It's meant to shape life. Shape response. Shape love. Shape actions. Believing in Jesus is not a get-out-of-jail-free card that means that people can go and live any way that they want to. If that's the way we think, if it's we think it's just there so that God can forgive whatever we do and so it doesn't matter how we live... We really haven't understand, understood God. And we haven't understood the cross of Christ and what Jesus was doing. Relationship means something. See, once we start to grapple with that, then we begin to understand a little more about what God is doing here with his people. See, God is not giving random judgments against any old people, He is bringing covenant curses on a people who belong to Himself. He is bringing on His people what He said that He would bring and what they agreed to if they lived rebelliously against their Lord. Would you flick with me to Leviticus chapter 26? It comes at the end of the covenant or the end of the establishment of the relationship between God and His people Israel on Mount Sinai. You remember the context of this. God has graciously rescued his people out of Egypt. He's brought them to himself and he said that he will be their god and that they will be his people. He's told them that he will bless them and keep them. He's told them that he will give them a bountiful goodness in his land. He's given them commandments and he's told them this is the way that you enjoy relationship with me. Then in Leviticus chapter 26 we have what is called Covenant blessings and curses. In the first uh, 13 verses, there, God is spelling out what is going to happen to His people if they continue to enjoy relationship with Him by obeying Him. Verse four: I'll send you rain in season, and the ground will yield its crops, and the trees of the fruit, and the trees of the field their fruit. Verse seven: I will pursue your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Verse 11, I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. What is God saying? He's saying, if you keep these commandments, I'll bless you. I'll keep you. I'll give you abundance. I'll, I will give you joy. I will pursue your energy, enemies. I will, I will give you safety. I'll give you freedom. But then he spells out, verse 14, but if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands. And if you reject all my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring upon you sudden terror, wasting diseases and feeble that will destroy your sight and drain away your life. And it continues. God says, "I'll, I'll bring wild animals against you. Fathers will eat their children. Children will eat their fathers. I'll pursue you with the sword. I will, I will kick you out of the promised land. You see, when we flick back to Ezekiel chapter 5, it's exactly what we see God saying. You will die of famine inside the city. You will perish by the sword outside of the city. You will be scattered to the four corners of the earth and I will pursue you and I will defeat you even there. There will be wild animals. There will be starvation. And through this, God was saying in Leviticus 26, through this I will get your attention and I will call you back to myself. See, what we have in Ezekiel chapter 5 is the result of years and years of covenant breaking and covenant unfaithfulness. What we have is over and over again God calling his people back to himself through his prophets, through his words, urging, calling, longing for his people to come back to him. And over and over again, them rejecting him and going his own way and doing their own thing. So what we have in Ezekiel 5 is the fulfillment of those covenant curses. You see, God takes the sin and the rebellion and the disobedience of His people very seriously. God takes the unfaithfulness of His people and His world very seriously. See, on the other hand, the human condition seems to be to make very light of it, to ignore it, to excuse it, to find reasons to justify it, We flirt with sin. We we, we play with it. We we, we muck around with it. We think it doesn't really matter. We think it's not that harmful. It really doesn't mean that much. God's saying to His people, it means everything. What is happening to you is because of your disobedience and your unfaithfulness and your unwillingness to listen and return back to God. You see, when we begin to see that in Ezekiel chapter 5, we start to see something of the sinfulness of sin. We see something of the horror that it is and the destruction that it brings and the curse that it is on our lives and on our world. And in that, we begin to see a little more of the great need that our world and our lives have for a Savior, for Jesus. See, in this we begin to see what it is that Jesus is doing on the cross and what it is He is accomplishing. Jesus, in His suffering and in His death, is actually suffering covenant curses for unfaithful people. Jesus, on His body, is suffering covenant curses for rebellion and for disobedience. Not because He rebelled and not because He was disobedient, but on behalf of His people. On behalf of those who belong to God, He was suffering and dying. You see, on the cross, we have more than just a demonstration of how much God loves us. We have that, but we have so much more. On the cross, we have more than just an example of how we are to love and give our lives up for each other. We have that, but we have so much more. On the cross, we have God showing the sinfulness of sin the curse that it is, and the punishment that it deserves. And we have Jesus suffering and dying and bearing that sin on behalf of his people. We have one that was greater than Ezekiel because he could truly bear the sin of his people on his own body and do away with it. See, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning, we're going to take bread and wine of which Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, broken and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And we more than just remember something that happened a couple of thousand years ago. We acknowledge our part in that and our deserving of this punishment and this death and this curse. But yet the gracious willingness of Christ to suffer and die on our behalf for his people. You see, it gets our attention, doesn't it, a passage like this. And it it makes us ask that question. How seriously do we take our sin? How seriously do we take our rebellion against God? Do we simply ignore it and try and justify it and minimize it? Do we think that it really doesn't matter? Do we use Jesus as a get-out-of-jail- Free card that means that I can live however I want. Because we're reminded that God takes it very seriously. God takes it extremely seriously, so much that he punishes his people for it. And he sends his own son Jesus in their place to suffer and to die for it. You see, you've got what God wants in his world in his people. A lives and a community that belong to him and to him alone. He desires and he delights in a people who, who love him and who worship him and who find their freedom and their hope and their joy and their peace in him. He wants a people who, who cling to him and who run after him and pursue after him and him alone and not foreign gods and idols and their own wants and their own wishes. He longs for and he desires a people who cling to Him and who delight in His love and in His saving works. That's why He calls His people back to Himself. Even in Leviticus chapter 26, if you, you read there in verse 40, it says, But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, their treachery against Me and their hostility towards me which made me hostile towards them so that I send them into the land of their enemies then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land verse 45 but for their sake I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God I am the Lord God says he does this so that they remember Him. So that we remember Him. So that we are drawn back to Him. Even in Ezekiel, there's light at the end of the tunnel. The, the focus is on the tunnel, but there's, there's light at the end of it. It says in verse 13 of chapter 5, Then my anger will cease, and my wrath against them will subside, and I will be avenged. And when I have spent my wrath upon them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. Again, God's desire through this covenant curses and through the sending of His Son that a people will be called and drawn back to Himself. That people will cling to Him, will repent, will turn from their sin and their evil and find their hope and their joy and their life in God and in His grace and in His mercy. See, God's amazing news of the cross in the empty tomb. Is that he has sent his punishment and his anger on his son. He's shown the sinfulness of sin. He's opened the way for sinful people to be back into relationship with himself. To be a part of his new family. To have their hearts cleansed. To have their hearts changed. To have their minds renewed. And their life altered. For people to be back in community with God and back in community with each other and in that community to delight, to do God's work and to honor Him and to serve Him and to live in obedience to Him. See, God again is calling, even today, people back to Himself. He's calling people to, to move from walking away from Him and against Him and being hostile towards Him. To turn to him to repent to acknowledge sinfulness and to find their hope and their freedom in their Savior See, simply hanging around in a church being part of a people is not enough Keith Green famously said going to church makes you a Christian no more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger simply hanging out with God's people relying on some goodness or some heritage or, or, or something in our, in our family to make us right with God. It's simply not right. It's not enough. God is calling people to turn back to Him, to repent, and find a new life and a new hope in His Son Jesus. Maybe for today, maybe today for some of us, that needs to be done for the very first time. Maybe we've been hanging around in churches for a while or maybe just recently that God is calling people to return to Him through His Son and find a new hope and a new life in Him. Maybe we have been ignoring God for a while. We've been minimizing our sin and our rebellion thinking it doesn't matter. Using Jesus as a jet out of jail free card. And to us, God is calling us back to Himself and back to His Son today. To Turn to Him to find life and freedom and hope and joy and forgiveness in His Son and His Word.